<laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well, I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon. And what Patreon is, it's going to help you the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right, looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode, I'll shout you out on this show and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes that's right jsc exclusives you'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else for ten dollars or more per episode now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show you got a business you want me to talk about it i want you to sponsor my show for ten dollars hit me up send me the script i'm putting you over plus you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become the People's Podcast. Hey now, my name is Jay Scott Smith, and I'm the host of a new show here on RVN TV called Jay Scott Confidential. It's a sports show that doesn't always stick to sports. Every week, we'll talk about the biggest topics in the sports world, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, or whatever. Plus, we'll have some great guests, we'll have a few laughs. In fact, we're going to have a lot of fun. So every Saturday at 12 noon, right here on RVN TV, it's Jay Scott Confidential. And I promise, not to keep it inside of this is JSC Radio. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. You may have barebacked your way to some kind of main event, one pay-per-view after another, but the fact is, I make more money than all three of you guys combined in the ring. And this here is what it's all about. And until you have this, I don't care what you say or what you think, but you will never, ever, ever be the showstopper until you take this thing away from me. I don't need to come down there and take you right now. I've got you in the Survivor Series, and when that day comes, I'm gonna kick your little scrawny ass. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. I'm gonna tell you all, With a tear in my eye. This is the greatest moment in my life. Everybody was wondering who the third man was. Michaels, are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is. Look at this. He's Talk about your psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. (laughs) 
check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now! My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 56th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, the second ever retro review. How the hell is everyone doing this week? We're getting off rapid fire. I want to thank each and every one of you who supports the show on all the different podcast providers. Plus, you can get at me on Twitter at Smith. You can follow the show at JSC Radio. Get at us on Instagram at jscottsmith. And, of course, if you want to support the show, go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. If you remember back in August, the first retro review dropped right on your ass. I told you then that when we got to November, essentially part two was coming. And this is part two. To give you a heads up what the Retro Review is, the Retro Review takes a look back, way back in some points, back into time, back to a classic or pivotal pay-per-view in pro wrestling. More often than not, it's going to be the World Wrestling Federation, better known as WWE. But as you heard in the intro there, I might occasionally dip my toe into the WCW waters. You never know what I'm going to bring you, but usually... When one of the big four pay-per-views is about to strike, you're going to get yourself a retro review, and that's what we're getting here. If you want to hear about this year's Survivor Series, the 2017 Survivor Series, I suggest you can holla at my homeboys, the Straight Shooters. Straight Shooter Radio, they give you the whole breakdown of this year's Survivor Series, plus NXT TakeOver War Games. Damn it. Check out the Straight Shooters. Go, Go holla at them. I follow them on Twitter, at Shooter Radio. Go get at them. They're right here in Philadelphia. They had me on their show. Check them out. And you can get everything you want to get about this year's Survivor Series. What we're talking about is the Survivor Series from 1997, November 9th, 1997, at the Molson Center in Montreal. We all know what happened that night. We don't need to... Don't need to belabor it. We don't need to act like it didn't happen. We all know how the night ended. But what's often lost is that there was an entire pay-per-view surrounding this. That wasn't the only match, albeit that's where all the tension was. So what this pay-per-view is, is essentially the most pivotal night really in modern pro wrestling. Because it's the night every damn thing changed. Now there are so many different Podcasts, and there have been so many different documentaries. Hell, Bret Hart was filming a documentary of his own at the time. So there's so much here. So I don't need to go deep into the damn into the damn weeds on this. You can listen to a multitude of them to get the entire background, the entire backstory. And we'll get to parts of it here. But this is looking at the entire damn pay-per-view. And boy, was it a mess. Just like I said for SummerSlam. 1997, 20 years ago, which is nuts that it was 20 years ago. 1997, the year I graduated from high school doesn't feel like it was 20 20 years ago, does it? Especially if you were alive in 1997, it really doesn't feel like it was 20 years ago. But it was. And I will put it out there as a disclaimer, which is kind of crazy considering that this 
podcast already has an explicit tag on it because, you know, the language gets a little colorful. But we're talking about 1997, which you wouldn't think, which you wouldn't think would be hella problematic. But it is. It's really problematic. And along the way, I'm going to bring up some things that are mad problematic. You heard it in the intro when Brett was talking to Sean. There was a nice, wonderful run of things in 1997 where it seemed you were able to say a lot more, get away with a lot more, do a lot more. And along the way, we'll bring that up. But first things first, ladies and gentlemen, it's time. It's time to start the retro review. Let's get off into this thing as we open it up from the Molson Center in Montreal on November 9th, 1997, the night that changed it all. One thing you can kind of forget about this is that back then, a lot of these WWF pay-per-views, and by the way, for this show, we will be talking in terms of what it was in 1997. It was not WWE in 1997. It was the World Wrestling Federation in 1997. It was the WWF in 1997. As far as I'm concerned, it's still the WWF, by the way. But in 1997, WWF had a whole lot of different funky names attached to their, to their pay-per-views. Even WrestleMania had a goofy little tagger hung on it. The tagger hung on to Survivor Series 97, Gang Rules with a Z. Because as I mentioned during the SummerSlam retro review, factions slash gang warfare was a big deal in 1997. By the time we got to Survivor Series, a lot of that shit had died down. But you had between the Nation of Domination, Los Boricuas, the DOA, hell, the Hart Foundation counted as a faction slash gang slash crew. The Canadians, if you wanted to look at it that way, they were all over the damn place. But as the pay-per-view was about to get going, they had this incredible retrospective video that started at WrestleMania 12 because that was really the whole genesis of this beef was the run-up to WrestleMania 12. Brett going on his hiatus afterwards, getting super kicked, losing the WWF Championship, and then Sean goes on to be champ, and maybe not exactly the most over one in retrospect, but that's where all this started, and it built and built and built and built to this. This had every bit the build that WCW had for Starcade of that year. The only difference is you got one hell of a payoff in the WWF. I can say that for damn sure. But without further ado, let's get down to business. And let's set off Survivor Series 1997 from the Molson Center in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Welcome everyone to the 11th Annual Survivor Series. We are live in the sold-out Molson Center in Montreal, Quebec. Where tonight it will finally be settled. Who is the man? Is it Brett the Hitman Hart? Or is it... Now, this pay-per-view, as you could hear there, there was good old JR, Jim Ross, Jerry the King Lawler, and that was it. Because up until that point, up until every pay-per-view at that point, Vince McMahon had been the third man on the table. Vince was not there for obvious reasons. We'll get to him later on. So this was the first of what would essentially be Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler basically becoming the two voices of the WWF going forward. And we just jump off right into this. They don't waste much time. They didn't go into a whole long spiel. They didn't do any crazy video to kind of set up the first match. We go right to it with 
the Headbangers, and the New Blackjacks. Oh, yes, it's a Survivor Series traditional four-on-four elimination match. The Headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher, against the New Blackjacks of Blackjack Wyndham. That's Barry Wyndham, the uncle of Bray Wyatt, and Bo Dallas. And his teammate, Blackjack Bradshaw, better known as JBL. They're taking on the team of the Godwins. You may remember them from the SummerSlam show where they showed up wearing Confederate flag t-shirts and patches on their knees. And their tag team partners, the newly formed duo of the Road Dog Jesse James, and the badass Billy Gunn, the New Age Outlaws. And they were already in their problematic glory right off the top. So yeah, I, I guess I might as well just jump on in here and kind of address that elephant in the room. You heard the phrase that Road Dog used there. This, unfortunately, was like a running theme in the WWF for the latter half of, 19, really for pretty much all of 1997. I'll get to more on that later. But yeah, you heard what he said there. And remember earlier when you, when Brett said that Sean quote-unquote barebacked his way into main events at pay-per-views? Well, prior to that, Brett made a reference to, I know what the, what the HHH and Triple H stands for, and please understand, it was a word starting with the letter H that rhymes with Romo. And yeah, it was bad. 1997, they were saying some things that you know damn sure would not fly. They were saying things that weren't going to fly in 1999 let alone in 2009, let alone today. But they were letting their homophobic flag fly, and that seemed to be a thing going on. So you got to understand here, though, this was the pre-DX New Age Outlaws. This was prior to them joining DX. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't officially join DX to 98. But this was when these guys had been together for maybe perhaps a month, where two months earlier, Badass Billy Gunn was Rockabilly, and Road Dog was just the real Double J. They were going nowhere. They get paired together, and they become one of the hottest tag teams in the history of the damn business. So you're dealing with pre-DX, the, the pre-DX outlaws. The Godwins are still out there in their full Confederate gear. The only thing they didn't do was bring a Confederate flag out there with them. But the match is just your standard Survivor Series match. Rarely got out of first gear. And the outlaws at first refused to even get in there with with, with JBL and Barry Windham because on Shotgun Saturday Night and on Raw, because they remember, this is 97, there is no SmackDown at this point, they had they had taken to stealing certain items that belonged to other tag teams. More on that a little bit later, but one of the things they grabbed were the Blackjacks hats. And needless to say, the Blackjacks weren't too happy to see Badass Billy Gunn walking around with just the rim of a cowboy hat while Road Dog was running around in another cowboy hat that belonged to either Bradshaw or Wyndham. I wasn't taking the time to look this whole thing up. So the match barely gets out of first gear. The Outlaws refuse to get into the ring. 
And when they finally do, it's Billy. Because Billy was the workhorse of the crew. He was. Billy was a hell of a worker. He's a, he was an extremely talented guy, but he was never going to be meant to be a single star. That thing they tried to do with him in 1999, having winning the King of the Ring and all that, 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 thankfully they aborted that pretty quickly when Rock just embarrassed him because it was wild. But Billy gets in the ring, and he's instantly getting some serious damn heat from the crowd. And when I say serious heat, yes, you know what I'm talking about. They're hurling homophobic slurs at him that I can't really play for you. So, like I said... 1997 was mad problematic. As much as we like to think the late 90s were very progressive, pro wrestling was not as much. When people whine and cry and lament, why why is everything so politically correct? Why, why does everything have to be so politically correct? Because you don't have a situation where 20,000 people are lobbing an F-bomb, and I don't mean of the four-letter variety, at a dude in the ring on pay-per-view, and it just goes loudly. And they don't have a big issue with it. I mean, assuming they were speaking English. They sound like Saddam Hussein. Everybody's hot at him, right? What is this crowd shouting? Something in French, I think. I can't help you there. Again, remember when people whine about PC culture and they wanted things to not be PC anymore? They want that sort of thing to be the norm again. Think about that for a second. So along the way... Billy is in there, still getting just peppered with homophobic slurs being hurled at him. By the way, he, he's not gay, but okay. Getting peppered with the wonderful language of the of the French Canadians. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you just have JR and Lawler. There's no Vince. Lawler, of course, had to have he had to ask the obvious question here. I know Kings don't know stuff like that. I'll tell you something else this king don't know. Where's McMahon? Do you know where McMahon is? I sure do. He's here. How about letting me in on He's it? He's a little busy right Why now. Why am I always the last to know everything? Well, we'll hopefully get a word with this man a little bit later. Again, we'll get to Vince a little bit later on. He's kind of hanging out in the back. He had a few things on his mind at this point. It that, Just a little bit through the match. Again, this was pretty much, it stayed in first gear. We won't really go into the eliminations in this thing because, you know, we're, it, it really didn't matter in the grand scheme of things in this particular match. But we will get to the finish. Now, we finally get down to the last three in the ring. You have from the babyface team, because yes, the Blackjacks, who were basically heels, are suddenly babyfaces because of the Outlaws. You have Thrasher from the Headbangers on one side, and you've got the Outlaws, Billy and Road Dog on the other. Thrasher reverses the pump handle finisher. This was before Road Dog was doing the thrusting motions on the pump handle. Thrasher reverses the pump handle slam into a cover on Road Dog, where Billy is waiting to drop off the top rope. He hits that knee and I say hit in like the loosest term possible, for the pin and the win, and the New Age Outlaws get the victory. Oh, look out, it's reversed. Oh, but Billy's a legal man. Billy Gunn right off the top. And Billy Gunn and the Road Dog have survived. Also, if you're wondering, there was no Howard Finkel here. Since they were in Montreal, they decided to have a French-speaking ring announcer. So all these victories, all these winners are going to sound a little funky because the guy is speaking French. But hey, when in Quebec, you do the Quebecois. Now, unlike today, 
where normally a match like that ends, there's some goofy skit. Maybe Enzo and Dolph Ziggler dress up as Colonel Sanders and they start battling over who's going to get to eat really substandard chicken or whatever the hell's going on with their ad deals or whatever particular charitable event they've got going on. Nah, when this match ended, the next one kicked right on in. There were no videos, no intros, no backstory. We just went right into our next four-on-four Survivor Series elimination match. Remember when I talked about the gang rules and the factions? I forgot one. Along the way, the Truth Commission showed up, and they featured the interrogator, later known as Kurgan from the Oddities, Recon and Sniper. And they looked like some combination of the SS guards and these and these like bootjacking thugs from South Africa. And they used to be run by the Commandant, but they were replaced very quickly by a gentleman known as the Jackal. You may know him as Don Callis, the color guy for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Well, the Truth Commission was in the building, and they're facing everyone's favorite biker gang, the DOA. Again, remember on SummerSlam? They're still doing that whole gang thing. Now, Kurgan, you have to understand, he was very limited. When you think of... I guess what they were trying to do with Kurgan at this point, think of what Braun Strowman was like a year and a half ago. That's Kurgan. The only difference is Kurgan never really advanced past being big guy who throws people as opposed to Strowman who's big guy who throws people and runs really fast and hits really hard and does really cool shit. Kurgan was never that guy. And by the way, as I mentioned, the Jackal, Don Callis, he was the first guy eliminated from this match and what did he do? He walked right on over to the announce table. Jerry, you know that the quickest way to get heat in this business on yourself is to tell the truth. And that's all I've been doing. My revelation for tonight is that my name will be glorified in Montreal at the Survivor Series. Again, this was a pretty standard fair, pretty easy to call match. It was a match that was meant to put Kurgan over and get him out there as this new angry evil monster, Kurgan the Interrogator, as he was still known then, he eliminated all four members of the DOA with essentially the same damn move. A kick to the gut, scoops him up, sidewalk slam, pin. Scoops him up, sidewalk slam, pin. He did it four times, finishing the damn thing off by hitting the move on Crush. Now, and that's it. Now it's up down to two men. The Interrogator about to be down to one. This big seven-footer is unstoppable. Yet another revelation has come to pass. My glorification is about to take place. I win the Survivor Series. There you have it. Kurgan gets the win, essentially single-handedly taking out the DOA, who would mercifully start to get broken up after this Survivor Series ended. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Stone Cold Steve Austin as he gets ready to make his return to the ring after the unpleasantries at SummerSlam, plus Team USA and Team Canada, where there's not a whole lot of Canadians, and Mankind and Kane set it off in Montreal. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the Retro Review of Survivor Series 1997 on episode 56 of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. 
and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds? At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me, whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows, such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. If you don't have the Stitcher app, simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. It ain't a race thing. It ain't a color thing. It's a me kicking your ass thing. And can't nobody stop. Where we take a look back at some of the all-time great and not-so-great moments in professional wrestling. That's right, damn it, we're back. J. Scott Smith here, episode 56, episode 46 of the People's Podcast. And this is the second retro review. We're talking about the 1997 Survivor Series. But first things first, man, you effing with the worst. I got to get a shout out to my man's doculence work. You hear this ridiculous beat underneath me. He just dropped some new heat today, right now. Go get it. Get on Bandcamp. Check him out. It's Doc. Illingsworth. You can follow him on Twitter at Illingsworth. Also, shout out my man Rufio Jones of Detroit City. His show, Allow Me, on YouTube. I have already made it clear. It either it's going to be next week or it's going to be in December. But I will be joining Allow Me so he can have me basically trying out this ridiculous food that he seems to be pulling in from all over the country to, you know, somebody has a taste test and why not be him? So I want to shout him out. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at JSC Radio. Follow me on Twitter at J. Scott Smith. I do have the blue check mark. I am on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith. And of course, how can you forget? You go to the website, jscottsmith.com to support the show. Go to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. We're back. And we'll pick up things. Just finished up the first of the two Survivor Series elimination matches. First match, New Age Outlaws. Ended up being the sole survivors against the new Blackjacks and the Headbangers. And then just for the break, we had the Truth Commission. And really, it's not the Truth Commission. It was Kurgan single-handedly going through the DOA to set us up for our next match. But before we got to our next match and after they did the obligatory, because they would do this a lot in 96 and 97, they would go into the crowd and talk to the fans and ask who was going to win and all that. They kind of selectively made sure they edited out anything where a fan made reference to Brett leaving for WCW. I thought that was rather rich. They actually ran a couple of those. But after that, we head over to the most 1997 thing possible. 
the WWF AOL room, as in America Online, that brought us such things as America Online Instant Messenger, which is about to get retired in the next couple of months. 20 years ago, that thing was just starting up, and it was happening at the Survivor Series. So we go into the AOL room, where we're greeted by Kevin Kelly, a.k.a. the current voice of Ring of Honor Wrestling. Kevin Kelly is in there with a guy you heard as we were coming out of the break, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now, the last we talked to you on a retro review was SummerSlam. And Stone Cold Steve Austin had a very unfortunate moment during SummerSlam. Let's see what Austin can do with him. No. How about that? A gun Owen Hart, in attempting to do a sit-down tombstone pile driver, set Austin up too low, dropped him right on the top of his head, and temporarily paralyzed him. But somehow Austin was able to regain the feeling in his limbs, crawl up, get the ugliest damn pin ever, win the Intercontinental title, only to have to surrender it because of the neck injury. And it was a very real possibility that Austin was not going to be able to wrestle again. Like, it was touch and go a month earlier over whether or not he'd come back. But here he is, three months after suffering, essentially, paralysis. He's about to get back in the ring. But before that, he's kicking it with Kevin Kelly in the AOL room. Stone Cold, I know everybody's talking to you, asking Nobody questions online you about, about your match. Stupid questions. How's my neck? Am I concerned about the neck? You're damn right I am. But you got to go out there and see it's either sink or swim. Steve Austin doesn't sink, so you're damn right I'm worried about it, but that's the bottom line. you got to live with these things and go on, and Steve Austin is going on. I don't need nobody feeling sorry for me because this is just something that happens. All right, well, Stone Cold is talking to the fans online right now. Join us, fans, on America Online. It's keyword superstars, and for you fans tuning in around the globe, click on international, then on sports. Then once you're there, it's keyword superstars for exclusive backstage coverage and interviews with America Online. I guess one other thing that should be mentioned here amongst all this. Leading up to this Survivor Series, the story, I mean, we all know what happened, so it's not like I'm spoiling it for you, but we all knew what was coming with Brett. And the reason we knew what was coming with Brett was this was the first true major wrestling story to essentially get leaked onto the internet. And that's back when things actually got leaked onto the internet. Not this, oops, my mixtape magically shows up on the internet. However did it get there? Because you uploaded it there, you jerk off. In this case, the story somehow slipped out and instead of normally slipping into dirt sheets, it found its way onto chat rooms like the one Austin was sitting in on at the Survivor Series. This was the first major wrestling story of the internet age. And you got to understand, in 1997, there was no Wi-Fi. There, 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 wa- there were no smartphones. Hell, we barely had cell phones at this point. And the cell phones we had, you weren't getting text messages on them. There were no iPads. None of that. AOL Instant Messenger was strictly confined to your desktop. If you weren't at your computer, you were not getting that damn message. That's how it was. So in 1997, to have this thing jump off the way it did, and the dirt sheets had just made it onto the internet, really, in those last couple of years. And now everything is flying wild and crazy, left and right, on the internet, bro. It was going nuts. So this was the first real time. Like, real time. Like a big time deal. It got out there, and the WWF couldn't get in front of it to stop it. 
So that's what the importance of this was. This is at a point where, again, dial-up internet. I remember it took, when I was in my dorm room at Michigan State, because I was a freshman, I was two months into my freshman year of college at this point, I tried to upload the WWF webpage at the time, and it would often take five to ten minutes for the damn thing to load because of all the colors and the pictures they attempted to put on there. They weren't even trying to do video at this point. They were barely able to get still photos. But the internet was so big and it was in its infancy really being spread out all over the place. So this AOL room thing kind of gave you a bit of an insight into what those of us with the primitive technology were dealing with at the time. But after we leave the AOL room, we head back to the ring. And once again, it's time for some good old-fashioned elimination action from the Survivor Series. And this one carries on the trope that has been going on year-round of the U.S. versus Canada. It hit a fever pitch in the summer But by the time you made it to this part of the year, late into November, well, not late into November, it's early November, but into November and heading on into into the winter months, that whole thing had basically died down. Brett won the title, kind of got off onto his own thing, and then, you know, the whole WCW thing happened. The rest of the Hart Foundation was kind of splintered off. Owen was dealing with Steve Austin basically stalking him for three months. You had Bulldog dealing with Ken Shamrock, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart was Jim the Anvil Neidhart, And Brian Pillman passed away. So this whole thing went kaput. And the guy who was leading Team USA, Del Wilkes, the Patriot, he was basically able to hang for two months. He got hurt, got hooked on drugs, and got fired. So that's how you end up with a Team USA comprised of Vader, Goldust, who is going through an angle where he's leaving his wife Marlena and walking around with the letters F-U, you get it, F-U, painted on his face, that F.U. standing for Forever Unchained, by the way. Then you have Mark Merrow, but not the wild man Mark Merrow, not Johnny B. Bad, but this is when he was starting his boxer gimmick, and he was marvelous Mark Merrow with Sable. And then the fourth man on this team is Steve Blackman, who made his debut the Monday before on Raw, running in as a fan, quote-unquote, and ending up having to be the guy who replaced Del Wilkes, the Patriot, because he got hurt. On the other side is Team Canada. The British Bulldog, Jim the Anvil Nightheart, and the tag team of Doug Furness and Philip Lafon, they find their way out there for Team Canada. On the entrances, again, you got to remember, the Patriot was originally supposed to be the captain of this team and a part of this team, but, you know, he's donezo there. And the music he used at the time was the music that's now best associated with Kurt Angle. It's like hearing that and watching this pay-per-view. I was not used to hearing that song play without the chorus of You Suck as those guys are walking down the aisle, which of course would have been said with a lot more vigor in friggin' Montreal this particular evening. Meanwhile, Team Canada comes out to what probably should be Canada's other national anthem. And here comes Team Canada. Yeah, that, that's a pop for your ass. It was by far, at least at the time, the loudest pop of the night. Now, I mentioned that Team Canada is a little bit of an oddly configured group because, as you'll notice, they're walking around with Canadian flags, including 
Phil Lafon, who's out here waving the flag of the province of Quebec, there's one little minor detail about this Team Canada, per se. Yeah, nothing quite like having the team representing Canada have a dude from Florida, a dude from Oklahoma, and a dude from England on it. The only Canadian is Lafon, and he wasn't even from Quebec, he was from Alberta. But hell, at least you had one Canadian on the team. Now this is when, as JR would put it, business starts to pick up on the night. About four minutes in, Bulldog and Vader, probably the two strongest guys in the damn company at the time, are just getting after each other. And Bulldog was an absolute beast here. This was before all the injuries really caught up to him and led to the spiral that eventually ended his life. Bulldog was a monster. There's one sequence where he catches Vader diving off the top rope, hits him with a full power, it's like a power slam basically, then snatches him up and hits a clean vertical suplex. I mean, it was crazy. Bulldog is mad strong here. He looked really, really good at this point. Meanwhile, you got Blackman, who got the first elimination of the night because Blackman gets counted out because, tee-hee, giggle, giggle, Blackman's not a wrestler. He's a karate fighter who doesn't understand the business because he literally went from being a fan who ran in to being in the Survivor Series five days later. And he ends up getting counted out because he forgot to get back in the ring. He's the first guy to get eliminated, so he's done. Vader, who ended up being the horse in this whole thing, doing most of the work, was able to pin the anvil and take him out, and then later took out Phil LaFont. Doug Furness ended up taking care of Mark Merrill along the way. So now we're down to our final two-on-two with Vader and Goldust representing Team USA, and you've got the British Bulldog and Doug Furness representing Team Canada despite the fact that, as we've established, neither of those guys was Canadian. So it's down to those two. And Vader, who has just been working his ass off since Merrill got taken out, keeps reaching over to Goldust to get tags, and Goldust is kind of giving him the short arm. And at one point, Goldust finally just turns his back on Vader, and that's when the big, angry Kodiak bear, as Jim Ross liked to call him, Finally had enough, and Leon was going to get Dustin in that ring one way or the other. With everything he's got, and he found it in that right hand, and Vader looking to make the tag. Look at Goldust. Just tagged the man. He can't, he can't tag him with that bad hand. Now they, hey! Well, that got his attention. Does that constitute a tag? Vader bringing Goldust in like yesterday's garbage. Oh, is that's what killing. some folks think that he is. Walk out on your wife and your baby. What is it's something on the back of his head. What does that say? I don't know. So he slaps Goldust and then snaps him over the top rope into the ring. Goldust says the hell with this. And he just rolls under the bottom rope and walks out. Gets counted out. He's done. This was the beginning of a very oddball feud between these two. And this is when Goldust started that crazy ass, I mean even crazier than the Goldust, crazy ass gimmick where he's wearing multicolor outfits and ball gags. And yeah, it, it was it was very bizarre. But now, unfortunately, Vader is left in there alone with two guys. And similar to the finish in the Truth Commission match, it comes down to a two-on-one where Vader, who's fought his ass off valiantly in this match, is unable to make up for the numbers game. And the Bulldog decided it was time to strike. Wait a minute. The Bulldog's got the ring bell. He's what? The Bulldog has got the ring bell here. Vader. Going up. Here comes a Vader. Boom! 
Remember, this is 1997, so you know that bell hit him square in the head because that's what we did back then. Good old-fashioned kill shots. Bulldog slaps Vader upside the head with the bell after Vader took out Doug Furness. Bulldog gets the pin and the win and is the sole survivor of the Team Canada-Team USA match and to a massive reception, by the way. So even though Bulldog won the match, Vader was the MVP there, but unfortunately, he fell victim to the ring bell. And you would think, albeit the referee could have technically disqualified him, you'd have thought the referee would have noticed the ring bell didn't, you know, ring after he hit the three and finished the thing off. Team Canada takes the victory, even though they only had one damn Canadian on the team. And we'll see more of them a little bit later. Meanwhile, Team USA was unfortunately a dysfunctional mess. You know, Kind of like how Team USA is in 2017. But we continue to move on with Survivor Series 97. And our next matchup is something that we would see a lot of in the next few years. Kane versus Mankind. So, the month before was Bad Blood. That was the pay-per-view that introduced the world to Hell in a Cell. That was the first Hell in a Cell match between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. The Undertaker was not on this particular pay-per-view, by the way, because he's off TV following getting jumped by Kane at Hell in a Cell. Now, Undertaker was backstage, but, you know, we'll talk about that when we get toward the end here. So, Kane, yes, that same Kane that's now running to be mayor of Knox County, Tennessee... That Kane made his debut the month before and had been just running through everybody for the following 30 days. All he did was just tear ass through people. And the one guy he ran into along the way, one guy he ran into along the way, I should say, is Dude Love. Remember when I did SummerSlam, you had Dude Love and Mankind. And since SummerSlam, Cactus Jack has also entered the equation. So you have Mankind, Dude Love, Cactus Jack. Dude Love is in the ring. Kane comes down, jumps him, destroys him, and brings the mankind out of him. And that is what set this whole match up. We already saw the video. They show the video of Kane showing up at Hell in a Cell, taking out The Undertaker and causing him to lose to Shawn Michaels, which sets up the world title match here. So we ain't seen Taker, but Kane has been running through everybody, including, of course, as I mentioned, having murdered Dude Love. Well, when this thing gets going... It really, really gets going. Kane comes out there to the full intro because now, you know, obviously these days they're not doing pyro anymore. So Kane coming out without the flame shooting out of the floor and out of the ring post, it just doesn't have the it doesn't have the vibe and the feeling to it. But this match, this match got nasty, like really nasty, really quick because it's as you expect. It's Kane fresh out of hell versus a supercharged mankind. Now, I've said over and over again, the 1997's MVP was Bret Hart. That was Bret's best year. That was peak Bret. He was living his best Bret Hart life in 1997. But an honorable mention has to go to Mick Foley. With Bret and Steve Austin being the stories of that year, to a lesser extent, Shawn Michaels. Mick Foley was a monster in 1997. He had an amazing stretch. This was in the midst of that amazingly just wild stretch that ended up going all the way into 1999. He was really on top of his game here. And he quickly 
asserted himself by putting the mandible claw on Paul Bear. If you recall, Paul Bear was his manager just the year before at the Survivor Series at Madison Square Garden after he introduced, not even introduced him per se, but actually when Mankind joined up with him at SummerSlam 96. And at the Survivor Series in 96, they had, they had a series of just nasty matches until Paul Bear tossed him by the wayside when Kane showed up. Well, he decided he was going to get some payback. Along the way, Paul Bear, the late Paul Bear, unfortunately, referred to Mankind as a pebble. Well, Mankind didn't take kindly to that and decided he was going to introduce the man formerly known as Percy Pringle to the Mandible Claw, but then along came Kane again. Yeah, that bump was nasty. And by this point already, not even factoring in what was going to happen as we went on, this was already low-key the best match of the night. It was good and stiff and violent. And it was pure Mick Foley doing each and everything he could to his body and Kane basically just being the guy to slingshot him around all over the place. And by the way, he wasn't done. Later on in the match, after Mankind has reasserted himself, including hitting an elbow off the apron, it's the Cactus Jack elbow that you've seen so many times from Foley. He hits that, and then he tries to go up to the top to hit a second one. And at that point, Kane decides he's going to be feeling froggy. He does a Brock Lesnar-type leap up to the apron and then makes Mankind go splat. I think that Mankind is in the kamikaze mode now. He doesn't care what happens to him. He's just out there to somehow... Some way destroy Kane. If he destroys himself in the process, he doesn't care. Kane is up. Look at this. Hold on, agility. Oh no, no, no! The sickening slap of mankind's kidneys and lower back right on the floor. You can also hear by this point in the call that Jim Ross is feeling it too. Ross had been doing a pretty good job, but it seems like Foley matches tend to bring the best out of Jim Ross. Next summer. You'll definitely know what I mean by that with another retro review. But he was feeling it. But as much punishment as Mick Foley can take, he just couldn't handle brand new, fresh out of the box Kane with the new car smell. The finish of this thing comes when Kane hits the tombstone, pins Foley for the win, and finishes the damn thing off. The Kane grabbing mankind, looking eye to eye. It's a tombstone. tombstone and the pin for the win to finish off mankind and it's wild to think that Kane that same dude that you saw here in 1997 dropping Foley on his head was the same guy facing Braun Strowman a week ago on Monday Night Raw after the match they kick it over to Michael Cole who by this point had replaced Todd Pettengill as the backstage announcer he made his debut at SummerSlam you already heard that on the first retro review and he's back there talking to two men 
Commissioner Sergeant Slaughter, and the owner, Vince McMahon. And Vince at this point was still kind of reticent to really refer to himself as owner on screen. He'd only really kind of started doing it openly over the past maybe three, four months of TV. But by this point, he's kind of slowly settling into that owner spot, that owner role. But anybody who watches this, and go back onto the WWE Network and watch this, by the way. I would suggest you definitely do that. Get on the WWE Network, spend that $9.99. It's worth the money. And you'll see it here when you watch Vince's body language. Vince looks like a man who's going through some serious conflict mentally because he knew what he had to do, and it wasn't going to be pretty for him. It's important that WWF fans get to see this match. This match, of course, uh, was to have happened on a number of occasions, and it did not for a number of reasons. Hopefully, we will have none of those reasons, and the fans of Montreal and the fans all over the world will get to see this extraordinary match with two of the greatest WWF superstars in history. Vince, I'm going to put you on the hot seat now. Who's going to win? I don't know. Coming up after the break, Ken Shamrock is a one-man wrecking crew. The Rock is slowly but surely starting to assert himself and show who he really is. Plus, Stone Cold Steve Austin makes his illustrious return to the ring and seeks revenge on that dastardly Owen Hart. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the Retro Review of Survivor Series 1997, better known as Episode 56 of The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. A ranger station. I'd like to report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire, and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update! I'm gonna let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. <laughs> hey now, what up though? It's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of the People's Podcast, JSC Radio. And you might be wondering why I call it the People's Podcast. Well... I've got a brand new reason for me to call it the People's Podcast because I'm putting the future of this show into your hands. This show is now on Patreon, and what Patreon is, it's going to help you, the JSC Radio listener, the JSC Radio follower and fan, contribute to the show in whatever way you see fit. That's right. Looking for people to help keep this show moving. Whether you want to donate $1 an episode, hell, $1 a month for $5 per episode. I'll shout you out on this show, and you'll even be able to vote on exclusive polls and exclusive half episodes. That's right, JSC exclusives. You'll get to hear those half episodes before anyone else. For $10 or more per episode, now it gets fun because you get to be a sponsor on this show. You got a business, you want me to talk about it, I want you to sponsor my show. For $10, hit me up, send me the script, I'm putting you over. Plus, you get all the other cool stuff that comes with it. For $25 an episode, same thing applies, except this time, you will become an official segment sponsor. Do you want a segment of this show sponsored by your business? Of course you do. That's why you want to hit me up on Patreon. For more information on how to become a sponsor of JSC Radio, go to patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Patreon.com slash JSC Radio, and you can truly help this become 
the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. Where we take a look back at some of the all-time great and not-so-great moments in professional wrestling. This is JSC Radio. Welcome back. Jay Scott Smith here with the Retro Review of the 1997 Survivor Series. This is episode 56, and if you want to follow along on the first 55 episodes, you can make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Apple Podcasts, just hit that subscribe button, and every time a new show comes in, it just automatically loads right on up. You ain't got to do nothing else. You can go visit the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash JSC Radio. We're also on Audio Boom. We're also on Google Play. We're, we're everywhere you want to be. Stitcher Radio too, damn it. Plus, be sure to follow the show at JSC Radio on Twitter. Follow me at J. Scott Smith. Follow Doc Dillingsworth, who plays the soundtrack to this damn show, at Illingsworth, and also big ups to Detroit City at Rufio underscore Jones and at Detroit City to show the homies of love. And my man Strife at Strifed, S-T-R-Y-F-E-Ed. Follow that brother too. He's good people. Everybody's good people back in the Motor City and I will see you in less than a week for Thanksgiving. Isn't it crazy? Survivor Series started off as, quote, the Thanksgiving night tradition, which of course it was created to go head to head with Starcade that the NWA was holding. But it is wild that we've almost made it to Thanksgiving now, man. That is nuts. This year just blew by. It flew by in a lot of ways, but at the same time was the longest damn year ever. And this pay-per-view at times, it kind of dragged. And it felt like the longest pay-per-view ever. But we've gotten to the point where it starts to really pick up. So we're coming out of this break where Vince McMahon tells Michael Cole he doesn't know who will win. Of course, we all know that's bullshit. He did know who would win. And... The tension was thick. It was in the air. Ross was referencing that tension as being why Vince wasn't there to begin with. It, it was like everybody knew something was going to happen. You ever had that feeling like you've been in a place and you, you just know something's going to jump off, but you just didn't know what? Well, that's what Vince was kind of leaning toward. Yet the pay-per-view rolled on, and our next match featured the Nation of Domination. That would be Farouk, The Rock, D'Lo Brown, and The Godfather. Now, the last time we joined you, This is going back to SummerSlam. The Rock actually was not around for that one. He was injured. He would come back shortly after SummerSlam and join the Nation of Domination. And by this point, it's been kind of reformed as a full, angry black man group of The Rock, Farouk, D'Lo Brown, and The Godfather. They were taking on the team of Ken Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson. Yes, he was still around at this point. And the Legion of Doom, a.k.a. the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. It was going to be very hossy. It was going to be vicious. It was going to be violent. It was going to be everything you could ask for out of a match. And at this point in time, they were really going heavy on two guys. The Rock, who they, of course, had invested all this time in for the better part of two years, and Ken Shamrock. And I say this every time I talk about Ken Shamrock, and I'm going to continue to say it again. I don't know how this guy did not end up being world champion in his tenure there. Just no clue. I have no idea how how that didn't happen. He was over huge. In a building and on a night where American wrestlers were largely getting booed or met with indifference, that place exploded when Shamrock came out. Like It was on fire when he came out there. So for him to be able to 
kind of owned that crowd. He had that very real, very mean, very nasty vibe that nobody wanted to mess with. He was a hero, yet he looked like he could he looked like he could legitimately whip your ass. To be fair, even at his current age, Ken Shamrock can legitimately whip your ass. But 20 years ago, 20 years ago, young Shamrock, young wild Shamrock, oh yeah, I wasn't getting no I wasn't getting in front of him. I don't know how those dudes in the UFC got in front of his ass. But Shamrock was big time over here. Ross calling him the dominant force in the WWF for years to come. The Road Warriors come out to their normal, loud Road Warrior pop. And there was tons of heat on Rock. Because you remember when Rock joined the Nation of Domination, he cut the infamous promo talking about Rocky's a lot of things. Rocky Maivia is a lot of things, but sucks is not one of them. And also, they were still referring to him as Rocky Maivia, but anybody who knows The Rock knew he was The Rock then. And that's how I'll be referring to him as this thing goes on. The match starts off with Hawk versus D'Lo, who just gets manhandled. Hawk no-sells a pile driver by D'Lo, the spot he'd been doing for 20 years up to that point. And then when Rock gets tagged in, he slaps Rock around, whips him into the ropes, gets kicked in the back by by a trailing D'Lo Brown, or excuse me, by a trailing Godfather, and walks right into the rock bottom for the pin. Road Warrior Hawk eliminated almost instantly. That was wild seeing that happen. He was down quick. So Road Warrior Hawk is out, and in comes Ahmed Johnson, who's had this long-standing beef with Farouk in the Nation of Domination. When I say long-standing beef, by the time they got to this point in 97, these dudes have been beefing for a full year plus. They were at each other's throats all the time. And Ahmed, he looked a mess, but the crazy thing is he was over like Rover still. It's crazy to think what it would be like if he actually somewhat gave a damn in the ring. And he somewhat gave a damn about his body after that first year where he was a superstar in 95 and in 96. If he gave a damn by this point, because 1997 into 98, Ahmed, was a, ugh, he, he was not good. And Ron Simmons, Farouk, jumps in there and attempts a dominator. Ahmed slips out from behind, catches him with a surprise Pearl River plunge for the pin, and Farouk is done. Damn! Exactly. So Farouk is out. D'Lo jumps in, and Ahmed immediately t- just tees off on D'Lo. D'Lo's able to tag the Rock in. Ahmed hits a spine buster, and I mean that in the loosest sense of the words because it was ugly. And this whole time, Farouk is still on the outside at ringside. He refuses to leave. He's arguing with one of the referees. I think it was Jack Doan. He's arguing with Jack Doan while, while Jimmy Corderas is the in-ring ref, but yet for some odd reason, they couldn't get him out of there. And then when it appeared that Ahmed was setting up to hit a big elbow on the rock. Farouk reaches in, trips him up, turns Ahmed over, holds the ankle with Jack Doan apparently right there seeing this. Corderas seeing it as well. And Corderas counts the damn three anyway and eliminates Ahmed. Get out of here. Oh, wait a minute, Farouk. What, what? Farouk holding the foot. Hey, how many referees? Are you kidding me? Even Ross was incredulous to how this damn thing goes on. That leads to more Rocky Sucks chants. And this match continues with Animal finally getting into the ring with Godfather. Kama, as he was also being, he's still being called Kama Mustafa. So this is right before he became the Godfather. Godfather celebrates a little too soon, throws up a black power fist, and Animal drop kicks him straight into the rock who's waiting in the corner. Animal rolls him up with a schoolboy for the pin, taking out the Godfather. And that brings back in Shamrock, 
and D'Lo. As, now, as obviously, as Tim White is trying to keep Animal out of this match, D'Lo gets Shamrock up and Rock punches him square in the nuts. I mean, it was, it, it was obvious. He got punched square in the nuts and a whole lot more homophobic chants started raining down. Again, this was a thing. Just go back and watch this pay-per-view on the WWE Network. That crowd was not exactly very progressive. I'll put it like that. Montreal, hopefully you're a lot better city now than you were in 1997. Oy. So Shamrock and D'Lo tag out. Animal comes in, fired up, hitting some nice standing drop kicks. The New Age Outlaws suddenly pop up from the back. Remember earlier I said the Outlaws stole the Blackjack's hats? They also stole the spikes, the shoulder pads of the Road Warriors. And out comes Road Dog wearing a set of shoulder pad spikes that they stole from them. Animal gets clotheslined out. He attacks badass Billy Gunn. And Road Dog hits him square in the face with a handful of baby powder, getting Animal counted out and eliminated from the damn match. That means we're left with another one-on-two situation similar to earlier where you have Ken Shamrock left in there against The Rock and D'Lo. Now Shamrock reverses the double whip into the double clothesline. Rock rolls out and Shamrock hooks the ankle lock on D'Lo, getting D'Lo to tap almost instantly. He's done. In comes Rock with a chair and he smashes Shamrock square in the back. It was pretty damn brutal. Just smashed him right in the back. Rock thought he had the three, but Shamrock kicked out at two. Rock pulled Ken Shamrock out over to the corner, hits the DDT. Now this is the point where, like I said earlier, Rock is developing that trademark signature offense of his. And that includes hitting that snap DDT. He tried another he tries to go for another cover. Shamrock kicks out at two again. Then Rock hits the people's elbow. He wasn't calling it this at the time. Shamrock kicks again. Rock attempts a second DDT, but gets reversed into a suplex. Shamrock hits the Frankensteiner, goes for the arm bar, rolls over into the ankle lock, and the rest, my friends, is history. Boy, a real gut check right here for both these guys. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Shamrock was snapping at him. Look at that neck. Look at that intensity. There's the, the arm bar. Submission. No, he's going to fuck up. Oh, no. He's got locked in. The ankle lock. Shamrock's ankle lock. He might have been getting And Shamrock survives. Shamrock survives. Shamrock is your winner and your sole survivor, and you heard the pop for him. I still don't get how he wasn't world champion at least once because that crowd was ready for that guy to be the man. Where you could have put the belt on him either before Austin, during Austin's run, there were so many different things there. Speaking of putting the belt on Shamrock, they damn near put it on him twice during this whole crazy stretch where Brett First, is it with WCW and with WWF? Then Vince tells him he can't pay him, so he goes and signs. And one of the options that that Brett had brought up multiple times was, I'll drop the belt to Shamrock. He wanted to drop the belt to Ken Shamrock. It looked like they were setting up to have him drop the belt to Ken Shamrock on more than one occasion, but they aborted it at the finish line. Ken Shamrock could have been a hell of a world champion, assuming... The, con- the company had decided to get behind him. After this, we get a promo for the December pay-per-view, Degeneration X. 
kind of saw where this thing was headed again when you see this with 2017 eyes. And up next, it's the match I was talking about earlier. It's his return to the ring. Stone Cold Steve Austin against Owen Hart once again for the Intercontinental Championship. And it's Austin's first official match since that SummerSlam neck injury. Now, we all know he spent the entire fall basically raising hell and being a nuisance to any and everybody around, just randomly showing up and hitting stunners on anybody. It didn't make a difference who you were. He would hit a stunner on your ass and then keep it moving. That's what he did. Remember, and that was the stretch of time where he got Slaughter, he got Jim Ross, he got Jerry Lawler, and eventually he got Vince McMahon in Madison Square Garden in September. So by the time he gets to Montreal, he's run roughshod through everybody. And now he finally gets his wish. He finally gets his hands on that no-good bastard Owen Hart, the one who hurt him, the one who injured him. And the video packages show Austin fighting through pain, whether it was the King of the Ring 96 injury, whether it was WrestleMania 13 where he's bleeding out with Brett holding him in the sharpshooter, whether it's obviously the injury by Owen Hart. Austin goes on this tear through everybody. He's jumping Owen. He's hitting him with stunners. The whole shebang-a-bang. And it all built to this. We're Stone Cold Steve Austin. Finally back after three months and trying to figure out what the hell he's going to do. The Rattlesnake is back in Montreal. The Rattlesnake from Victoria, Texas. The toughest SOB to ever lace boots. to gain revenge for a near career-ending injury at the hands of Owen Hart at the, at the SummerSlam just three months ago. So Austin is in first. And the funny thing is, is like because of that USA-Canada dynamic, he's half cheered and half booed here. But Austin, a natural heel, is welcoming it. In fact, at one point, he's trying to challenge some jabroni in the front row to come into the ring and get some of him. That's... He pretty much knew he was going into a hostile terror, hostile situation. So he figured, why not just make the most of it? And then Owens' new music hits, the music that you probably know him best for for, unfortunately, the final couple of years of his life, that new music, the enough is enough music, and he doesn't come out there by himself. Yeah, Owen Hart's won a couple of slammies. on the shelf with a hit to the back of the head and we all know what he did to Stone Cold Steve Austin at SummerSlam. And you know, let's face it, in actuality, the physicians have not cleared Stone Cold to wrestle. That's right. He came out there with the American Team Canada from earlier, including Anvil, Ernest, and LaFon. He comes out there with those guys pretty much like the Singh brothers were coming out there with gender all this time. And one of the things he does, and something he had taken to doing during that whole run when Austin was out, is that he had Owen 316 shirts, and on the back it read, I just broke your neck. It was pretty bad. Loud Owen chants in the arena. The arena is peaking for Owen, for the most part, because obviously it's Canada. Canada loved them some hearts, especially loved them some Owen hearts, and there were loud chants in that arena. In fact, Owen intentionally stalls clearly trying to keep this match short. Now, that's the thing. Steve's coming back. 
after having been gone for three months. He hasn't worked a real match. He's gone out there, he's hit a few stunners and got his ass out of the ring, but he hasn't actually had to work a full match. So they had to set this thing up to make this as easy, quote-unquote, because it's not easy getting in there, as easy of a match as you could, considering the circumstances, because you got a guy where you don't know if you bump him, if he takes a wrong move, something really bad could happen. So they're unsure here of his condition. So while Owen stalls, Anvil tries to sneak in from behind and immediately eats a stunner. Owen rushes into the ring, the bell rings, and again, this crowd was at its best. But at least in this case, this chant, considering the other ones, wasn't nearly as offensive. They're simply chanting, break his neck. Because, you know, why not? Owen attempts a quick pile driver, but it's reversed teasing that potential for Austin to get hurt a second time via that pile driver, but obviously they were not going to go for that one. He teased the quick pile driver. He ends up getting it reversed and gets sent to the outside and attacks Austin's knee. Once Austin is able to recover and turn the tables on Owen a second time, having already taken down the anvil with Furnace and Lafon dragging anvil up the aisleway, Owen figures, you know what? Since they're leaving, I'm leaving. And Owen Hart took one right in the beak with the... Uh Right to steal ring post, and now Owen Hart sees his backup is leaving, and it looks like Owen Hart is walking out of here. Owen's opening up a can of haul ass. After Austin chased him down in the aisleway, both men fought near the announce tables, keeping the match out of the ring intentionally. Owen was trying to get himself disqualified multiple times and even rings the bell trying to get the referee to stop the match and get him the hell out of there. They finally get it back in the ring, and initially Owen works over Austin before he reverses, stomps a mud hole in him in the corner. He whips Owen off the ropes, and it sets up the exact same damn spot that happened at SummerSlam, where it looked like Owen was going to tease that tombstone pile driver, but Austin was able to reverse out of it, sets him up, hits him with the middle fingers, boot to the gut, stunner, and ball game. He's stomping that mud hole in him and walking it dry. Austin again. Oh, Austin, a stunner! A stone cold stunner! Yes! Austin's a champion! Steve Austin is a new Intercontinental Champion! Wait a minute! Team Canada's back! Furnace LaFond! Stunner for your trouble! And for good measure, he took out both Furnace and LaFon, who ran back into the ring too little too late. Steve Austin regains the WWF Intercontinental Championship. It was his second reign as Intercontinental Champion. He walks out with the belt after being helped off at SummerSlam, and it's been a full-on redemption story for the Rattlesnake. But coming up after this break, you all know why we're here. You all know why you remember this pay-per-view, even if you weren't really following wrestling. The Montreal Screwjob. We give it all the room it deserves and all the room it needs after this. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is episode 56 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, the retro review of the 1997 WWF Survivor Series. We'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio.
What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hey now, my name is Jay Scott Smith, and I'm the host of the new show here on RVN TV called Jay Scott Confidential. It's a sports show that doesn't always stick to sports. Every week, we'll talk about the biggest topics in the sports world, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, or whatever. Plus, we'll have some great guests, we'll have a few laughs. In fact, we're going to have a lot of fun. So every Saturday at 12 noon, right here on RVN TV... It's Jay Scott Confidential, and I promise not to keep it inside the Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today, and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kindle Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is JSC Radio. This is the JSC Radio Retro Review. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. And he can look in the mirror and know that. Where we take a look back at some of the all-time great and not-so-great moments in professional wrestling. This is episode 56 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, the retro review of the 1997 WWF Survivor Series. Jay Scott Smith here with you. Want to once again thank my man Doc Gillingsworth for being the soundtrack of this damn show. Support him. Go to his Bandcamp page, Illingsworth. Illingsworth. I-L-L-I-N-G-S. Worth. He's a part of the Detroit City crew. Plus, he actually goes out and does different shows. I know he spends a lot of time in the Midwest. Eventually got to get his ass out here to the East Coast. But support Doc Illingsworth. Support the show at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Support jscottsmith.com. Follow me on Twitter at jscottsmith. Follow me on Instagram at jscottsmith. Follow me on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith, and you can follow the show on Twitter at JSC Radio. Man, listen, this has been it's been a it's been an interesting task getting through this. I will say that, but we've made it to the part where everybody knows what happened. We've made it to the part that you were all waiting for, ladies and gentlemen. It's the main event. For the World Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship, it's the champion Bret Hart. Well, it's the WWF champion Bret Hart against Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid. 
You know what it is. We don't even need to go any further. You know what this is about. Now, prior to the match starting, they did the real close-up, clear everybody out of the gorilla area, and walking out of one locker room is Shawn Michaels and Triple H and China and Ravishing Rick Rude. And as he makes that slow, kind of methodical walk to come out the to, to come out the ramp and come out the entranceway, he heads out onto that floor in the Molson Center to some of the loudest boos you will ever hear. When I mean, when you hear there's heat involved, those are some of the loudest boos you could ever ask for. It is outrageous how much he was hated there. But that's what a good heel wants is to be hated. And he was hated in Montreal. I think he still is hated in Montreal today because of this match. He comes out, does the long walk with Triple H in China, gets out there, takes a Canadian flag from a fan, and first he sticks it up his nose, then he wipes his ass with it, then he lays it on the ground and friggin' humps it. Well, Shawn Michaels certainly not endearing himself to the fans here in the Bolton Center. Disrespecting the Maple Leaf, obviously. We apologize for that to our friends and our fans in Canada. Michaels is very arrogant, but he is the greatest athlete in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, not exactly being respectful of another nation's flag there. So as all this is going on, Brett emerges from a dressing room in the back, and he starts to head out with Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the British Bulldog, and Brett's own son, carrying a big Canadian flag behind him. And when Brett came out, he came out. Like, when he came out, he came out. That, it, it, he came out. Because that crowd exploded. They had been waiting the whole night for him. Even the ones in the arena who knew that he was leaving for WCW. That place exploded. It was amazing how loud that place got for Brett. And in a lot of ways, it's like the narrative was already being set even as Brett was heading down to the ring. And it didn't hurt that Jim Ross decided to make a point to note that Brett's debut was at age 19 in 1976. So by that point, he's 40 years old in 1997. It means he's 60 years old now. He's 40 years old in 1997. And there was always that little subtle jab that Brett was old and washed up and his best days were behind him. And that's part of the little nudge that Ross gives him on the commentary here. But with all this crazy tension and everything else that's going on, it also should be noted that, yeah, they wanted to acknowledge the obvious. They wanted to acknowledge that something was happening. Something was going on. And Jim was very matter-of-fact in stating this. You can feel the electricity! will be on the line momentarily. And what an ovation for the 21-year veteran, Bret Hart, who debuted at the age of 19 in 1976 in Calgary, Alberta. It has been a long journey for the Hitman. This match was a long journey in itself. Took 18 months to get it done. Never, ever see it again. So as the 
two men are in the ring getting ready. And by the way, it's lost in all this also that Shawn Michaels was the European champion in the midst of all this. And no, the European title was not on the line. Shawn jumps Brett, like he instantly jumps Brett in the ring. Brett quickly gets back on top and gets back out in front of him. The bell now has not rang. This is going to be similar in a way to the Austin match at WrestleMania 13. Brett tosses Sean onto the floor and then later into the crowd, and they fight into the seats. By this point, now Pat Patterson, Sergeant Slaughter, and Vince McMahon have wandered down to the ringside area along with a bunch of referees to try to get this thing under control and get them back in. Ross immediately starts to, you know, talk about, again, that damn elephant in the room, which would be Brett's departure. Yes, just all of a sudden, that little detail of it could be his final match if he loses. Because that's what I remember hearing that when I saw this thing live in 1997. And I'll explain my whole wrestling kayfabe thing at the end of this. But Brett backdrops HBK out of the crowd and then kicks him in the nuts. There's a lot of nuts getting kicked in this thing, too. Kicks him in the nuts. Tons of referees are now out trying to break this thing up. If you are watching this thing on the WWE Network, you'll notice that this match actually was pretty damn violent. And these referees are trying to stop this, and they are literally fighting up and down the aisle. Like, all the way up and down the aisle. Brett even punched Pat Patterson. It was It, it started to remind Jim Ross of a certain scene that occurred a few months earlier. The fight continues after that, all the way to the entrance ramp where Brett hits Sean with a fire extinguisher. Brett knocks out another referee, and Vince is just begging Brett to get it in the ring. We, we know now why Vince wanted him in the ring so bad. Now, mind you, at this point, we're nearly 12 minutes into this match that technically has not had a bell ring until finally Brett tosses Sean back in the ring. The bell goes, and... To add insult to injury, Brett grabbed a flag of Quebec from another fan and choked him out in the middle of the ring with the Quebec flag. Drinks and trash start flying into the ring. Plenty more homophobic comments saying Sean is, a well, you know, an F word, and it's not my F word that I use that has four letters. It's a different F word that has six. Sean manages to finally get a hold of Brett, reverses it on him, and chokes him with the Quebec flag. They fight back out to the floor with Sean in control, but albeit briefly, Sean does hit Brett with the Canadian flag that he brought to the ring, snapped it over his back. There's plenty of leeway happening here on the floor as it's a notice qualification match. And now the first real rest hold finally comes. Think about this. They've been fought in, in the ring, outside of the ring, on the floor, up the ramp, in the crowd. They finally get a rest move in 20 minutes in. People don't appreciate a rest hold until you really sincerely need a damn rest hold it's it's pretty wild and they continue to go back and forth and actually another thing that's lost is that thanks to the screwy ending people don't really remember this match it was actually a really damn good match and it looked like it was shaping up to be something spectacular by the end of all this Brett ends up attacking Sean's legs Traps Shawn Michaels on the ring post with that python, that figure four where he wrapped you around the, the ring post, that thing he broke out during that 1997 year where Brett was the best in the damn business and it wasn't even close. 
But yeah, lost in the finish of this thing was how good this match actually was, even though you could also hear faint chants of Brett sold out and you sold out. Brett puts on the figure four, Michaels reverses it, and Brett fires up on Sean, gets him into the corner, pummels him with just punch after punch in the corner, is able to finally hit a side rushing leg sweep for a two count again, and then the shit happens. Brett goes up top to try to hit a high cross body. He misses and drills Earl Hebner on the ref bump. Michaels, who then rakes Brett's eyes while Hebner is supposedly down and out. And, well, we all know the rest. We know how this ends. What is, look at this! Oh, you're kidding me. Michaels, are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is! Are you kidding me? quote-unquote winner via quote-unquote submission the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels to win the WWF title and we all know what happened after the fact Brett realizes he got played stands up after getting out of that kind of a off-looking sharpshooter stands up looks down spits right on Vince like right in his face I reached around to grab Shawn's leg and I could hear someone say ring the bell that's when I knew it was Vince McMahon I finally realized that they screwed me. They really screwed me, the lousy bastards. Michael slides out of the ring, feigns anger as he grabs the title belt and storms off up the aisle back to the locker room. One fan even swatted him with a sign. And tons of middle fingers flying out of the crowd. People are hot. They're throwing drinks. They're spitting at him. They're making every possible way to make it as miserable as you could be getting all the way to the back and the show ended abruptly and there you have it now there's been all kinds of speculation for the 20 years since this happened of who orchestrated it who knew who knew this who knew that if you if you listen to bruce pritchard's podcast the extremely the extremely popular something to wrestle with if you listen to pritchard's podcast pritchard insists that he didn't know vince russo didn't know that the only people who really knew on the inside were Vince, Gerald Briscoe, Shane McMahon, and a couple of other wrestlers. I mean, not wrestlers, but a couple of other officials in the back. And that was it. They left everybody else in the dark. Michaels and Triple H were obviously in on it. Even though a few minutes later, courtesy of Brett's documentary Wrestling with Shadows, a few minutes later, Brett decided to ask Sean himself, was he in on this or not? Sean, you weren't in on that? 
fucking idea. I got no place. God's my fucking witness. My hands are clean of this one, I swear to God. He's yelling me out there. I gave him a belt when I came back here. I will not have any part of it. So we obviously know now, as everybody does, that Sean was lying. Sean was lying to basically keep from getting his ass kicked that night and to keep from getting found out. Because it didn't help that not only were, you know, people like Brett not in on it, obviously. Most of the boys, most of the wrestlers weren't in on this. Bruce Pritchard tells this great story of how The Undertaker, for years, thought he was in on it. And how Taker, who wasn't on the pay-per-view, happened to be backstage because, you know, Undertaker's Undertaker. And they, when they start trying to get him out of the way so they can shoot the intros, Taker thought that was them kind of cluing everybody in and getting everybody set up. So nobody knew. So when Brett is asking Sean, he's asking Sean, A, just to see what kind of answer he'll give him, and B, just in case he has to whip his ass the way he eventually handled Vince. Because again, we know what happened. After Vince comes in there, along with Shane and along with Gerald Briscoe, Brett tells him, you get out of the locker room, or I'm going to lay you down. As we would later see a couple of weeks later, this was not a work. In fact, if you saw the Wrestling With Shadows DVD, which I would suggest you get on YouTube and check that out, because it is out there. Wrestling, I remember watching Wrestling With Shadows after this whole thing happened, and it kind of did open my eyes a lot to this. Because, if nothing else, the Montreal Screwjob was when a lot of people's innocence with pro wrestling kind of just died. Because 1996 was probably the last year you could plausibly deny that it was a work. Because by that point, the internet is starting to catch on. The dirt sheets are starting to get more popular. So by the time you reach the screw job here in November of 97, the plausible deniability is out the window. And the true nature of what this business, and it is a business, is, hits the fan. Brett talked about all this in Wrestling With Shadows. And then obviously two weeks later, Vince decided to offer up his side of the story with Jim Ross. Seven days ago at the Survivor Series, did you or did you not screw Bret Hart? Some would say, I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you, I screwed him. I look at it from a different standpoint. I look at it from the standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. And he can look in the mirror and know that. Now, as the years have gone on, it's come out that Vince honestly thought that people would, would, would see that interview, hear those words, Brett screwed Brett, and treat it as if he was the babyface. He felt that people would rally behind him as a babyface after doing this, when actually it was quite the opposite. If you listen really closely to Vince here. I have no sympathy for Brett whatsoever. None. I have no sympathy for someone who was supposed to be a rustling traditionalist, not doing the right thing for the business that made him, not doing the right thing for the fans and the performers and the organization who helped make him what he is today. Brett made a very, very selfish decision. Brett's gonna have to live with that for the rest of his life. Brett screwed Brett. I have no sympathy whatsoever for Brett. You can hear the, the, the seeds of what would eventually be known as Mr. McMahon building. Because that's what this ended up doing. Brett went on a WCW, 
And we all know how that turned out. It didn't go well. And it started years of just not only bitterness and animosity from Brett, but the entire Hart family toward Vince. Brett goes to WCW. We all know what happened. WCW didn't know what the hell to do with him. It's like they got him and then just kind of held on to him just for the hell of it. He does have some pretty good matches. He does win the U.S. title. He wins another world title there. But that's not the same Brett. Brett and WCW was a shell of his former self. Plus, he wasn't happy there. He wasn't like 1997 Bret Hart. 1997 peak Bret Hart. 1997, the Bret Hart who could do no wrong. That guy was gone. And he even acknowledged it in Wrestling with Shadows. He felt like he had kind of been killed off in a way by the by the screw job. He talked about that, that DVD. He talked about Wrestling with Shadows in the 2014 interview. And he pretty much acknowledged that He's thankful he did Wrestling with Shadows, the documentary. But he also notes that it was because of that documentary that it took years and years and years before things got right. Well, that and the whole thing with Owen Hart, which we've talked about before. But here's Brett talking about Wrestling with Shadows and what it did for him. I always thought they gave me the... They gave my side of the story. And if that had never... If they'd never been there to film that whole thing... They would have done a whole different, would have done a whole different smear job on what I was. People would have, they would have turned and changed and tried to paint me out to be the, you know, a guy that was unprofessional and difficult and a prima donna. They were doing that anyway. But when the documentary came out a year later, it was kind of like, they were the ones with all the egg on their face, I thought. We all know the deal. Eventually, Brett goes into the Hall of Fame in 2006 and fully rejoins and comes back into the company's fold in 2010. But... That night in Montreal, the night basically changed the entire game in wrestling. It sent Vince in one direction. It sent the company in one direction. Brett goes to WCW, and eventually his career has ended about a year and a half later thanks to a concussion. So all things considered, who knows what would have happened if, say, Vince decided to keep Brett, and Brett decided that he was going to stay in, in the WWF. What's to say that he decides to just do the job for Sean. Does it change the game the way that the game has changed? Who knows? We'll have no idea. I just know for the last 20 years, we've talked about this and rehashed this and gone over it over and over and over again. But you know what? I'm not going to close this out. I'm going to let Brett do it for me. Here's that 2014 interview where Brett talks about the impact of the screw job and what it's had on his life, on Shawn Michaels, and on the entire business as a whole. You know, we're tired of it. I was tired of it. Sean was tired of it. And in a lot of ways, I think the fans were tired of that sort of screw job story and rehashing it. And and I was kind of glad to sort of make peace with it. And, you know, I'll, I'll always uh, appreciate what WWE's done for me. And I'm on good terms with them now. And I'm pretty respectful of, um, of the company and whatnot. But uh, I never forget what happened. My name is Jay Scott Smith. And I want to thank you for listening to this retro review. I'm going to be back at you with another one in January, just in time for the Royal Rumble. But as always, I want to thank you all for supporting the show. I want to thank you for supporting me on jscottsmith.com. I want to thank you for supporting me on JSC TV, which is coming up later today. I want to thank you all for supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash jscradio. I want to have you take care of yourself. God bless. 
Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. And we are out of here. Enjoy Survivor Series. Enjoy NXT TakeOver on the WWE Network. And I'll be at you next week. Goodbye, everybody. What is, look at this. Oh, you're kidding me. Marcus, are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is. Are you kidding me? Thanks for coming out. God bless you. Good night. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. I heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.